Knack knack. Who's there? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not share that with you. Hey, no sweat. Come on in. Make yourself at home and take anything you want. Wait, you wouldn't let a stranger in your house. Why would you let anonymous traffic scrape your website? Introducing IP Info's Privacy Detection API, a fast and simple way to detect malicious traffic. Activate your free trial today at ipinfo.io. And don't forget to use the promo code CODESTORY at checkout. When I say software supply chain, I mean the actual supply chain for software itself, like your code, your dependencies, the build process, the build system, all of that stuff. So I got into this space probably about four or five years ago now um, when I was working at Google. Right? I was at Google for about nine years before starting ChainGuard. So the first project I did in open source, kind of outside of Google's internal world, was called Minikube. It's the official way to get like a Kubernetes cluster running on your laptop. When it came time to actually do a release of this thing, there was no uh, kind of good, sanctioned, secure way to do a build of this program that the entire community was basically downloading and running as root on their laptops. My name is Dan Lawrence, and I'm a co-founder and CEO at ChainGuard. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Dan Lawrence created a solution for your software supply chain to make it secure by default. All this and more on Code Story. Dan Lawrence got into tech in a roundabout way. Most of his time in school was dedicated to the study of mechanical engineering, building in the world of atoms and machine shops and with 3D printers. He learned how to program through MATLAB and he got hooked. He lives in Austin, enjoys taking in the live music scene, and likes to get outdoors when it's not 108 degrees like it was when we did this recording. While Dan was at Google, the well-known SolarWinds attack happened, illustrating the gaps and holes in the software supply chain space. Given he had experience in this area, paired with the Biden administration's executive order to secure this space, this led Dan and his co-founders to give their startup a try. This is the creation story of ChainGuard. ChainGuard is a pretty new startup. We founded back in October of last year, so eight, nine months ago or something like that. Our kind of goal and overall mission is to help uh, make the software supply chain secure by default. When I say software supply chain, I mean the actual supply chain for software itself, like your code, your dependencies, the build process, the build system, all of that stuff. We don't do software for physical supply chains. <laughs> that turns out to also be a giant mess right now, and we get a lot of confusion about that. So I got into this space probably about four or five years ago now um, when I was working at Google. Right? I was at Google for about nine years before starting ChainGuard. And while I was at Google, I had to work on a bunch of different parts of the cloud platform there, mostly in the developer tool space. When containers and Kubernetes and Docker all started to take off, I got pretty lucky and had an opportunity to start working on a bunch of the open source code there. So the first project I did in open source, kind of outside of Google's internal world, was called Minikube. Um, if you're familiar with Kubernetes, Minikube is the official way to get like a Kubernetes cluster running on your laptop. When it came time to actually do a release of this thing, there was no uh, kind of good, sanctioned, secure way to do a build of this program that the entire community was basically downloading and running as root on their laptops. 
Um, people were just grabbing this 80 meg binary off of GitHub and installing it. You know, just kind of went down this rabbit hole of installing Jenkins on Mac minis under my desk that you know, the security team probably wasn't too happy about, but there was nothing else I could do. It was kind of boring. Nobody really cared or prioritized it for a while. And it just felt like we were bothering everybody and making their lives harder. You know, a bunch of kind of open source supply chain attacks started to rise over you know, the last couple of years. Different package managers like NPM, PyPy, uh, people accounts getting taken over, maintainers deleting code, that kind of thing. But we've also seen it affect enterprises, and that's kind of where the company came from. Um, at the very end of 2020, um, probably the, the most famous breach in the space uh, was on uh, SolarWinds. Essentially, one of their build systems got compromised, and an attacker used that to insert malware into their product that they were building and shipping. Um, this is a security product, so it was running in a bunch of sensitive environments, including uh, the U.S. government. That was kind of malware was stealing and exfiltrating data, um, which led to a whole bunch of new regulations and an executive order from the Biden administration uh, to help secure uh, this part of the ecosystem. Um, so the space kind of picked up overnight, um, and it seemed like a pretty good time to try a startup. Okay, so tell me about the MVP. Maybe this is the, the Mac Minis under your desk or, you know, wherever you want to take it. But tell me about the MVP. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? A bunch of our product and strategy is actually around open source because that's kind of in everyone's supply chain and it's kind of where everything starts. Nobody builds code in a vacuum. 99.9% of organizations, according to some last survey, are using open source and kind of that 0.01% left, I think, probably misunderstood the question or something. And so we actually had a lot of our MVP and a lot of our ecosystem and kind of a whole community before we started the company, um, just from a whole bunch of different open source projects. So it was pretty clear which direction we were going to go, and um, open source stuff already had adoption. Um, and so it was pretty easy to start experimenting and playing with some kind of products around that. We weren't starting from scratch. That would have been much harder. Okay, so then even with, you know, the open source world and having some things to start with, you probably, and I would even say, I could guarantee you did, have to make some decisions and trade-offs, right, about what were you going to make in the short term, what sort of debt you were going to take on. So tell me about those decisions and how you coped with them. I mean, we tried to do kind of the basic startup approach as you know, close to the book as you, you can, right? Get some early customers, get some early design partners, people that want to work with you, want to give you feedback. Um, and that was working pretty well. But kind of the problem we ran into is that uh, this is a really new space and everybody knows that this is a big area of risk for, from a security perspective, but nobody really knows the answers yet. Um, and there's no kind of one size fits all answer for every organization or every phase in the development life cycle. And so feedback just kind of started to stall. You know, people would say, that seems like a good idea. That one seems fine too. So that's kind of, you know, the last thing you want to do you know, at the start is just kind of guess, make stuff up and hope people like it, right? You want constant feedback, you want to be data driven, uh, but we just couldn't really get any more data because uh, customers didn't know. Um, they really just wanted us to help them improve security any way possible. So that was kind of one of the big decisions and trade-offs we had to make is, are we really running out of feedback? Are we really going to have to start guessing and kind of lean on our own expertise? Um, and we did, and it's been working out so far. That's interesting because, you know, normally you get into a passionate crowd of folks, they're going to give you feedback, you know, left and right, morning and night. And, and it, it seems like this is a little bit different. You know, there, there's some early feedback you get, you know, some really you know, high-level directional stuff. Um, but at some point, you know, we're not getting the, oh, I want that button to be blue, you should put that over here, kind of fine-grained stuff anymore. That kind of stopped. We just kind of had to guess and go out on a limb and actually build some products um, and get them in people's hands before the next kind of wave of feedback started. Mocks and demos and that kind of thing weren't cutting it anymore. So then from that point, you got your MVP, 
right? You've got enough feedback and you've got enough expertise to be building the product. How did you progress it and mature it? And, you know, what's, what would be interesting is how did you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or address? You know, the problem we ran into before kind of started to inform the roadmap of, uh, well, we need feedback. We really want feedback. We're not getting it. So let's build something, get in people's hands, and then get that next wave of feedback. So the roadmap turned from being kind of feature-based to how do we get the next set of feedback that we need from the next set of organizations? I mean, let's go do that. And if that involves uh, you know running a survey, cool, we can figure that out. But it, kind of here it involved actually building products and finding people willing to install them in their production environments. So that's kind of where we went. We tried to keep stuff as lean as possible, like really MVP focused of like, will you actually take this and kind of hand this to your DevOps team, have them install it in you know production or development environment um, and use it every single day. From there, once you actually get three or four or five organizations that are doing that, then the feedback starts pouring in um, and then you can kind of shift back to normal kind of customer driven development. So let's switch to team, Dan. How did you go about building your team? And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? Yeah, that was one of the easiest things for us, honestly. This is, since it's such a new space, the whole software supply chain security space, um, it's a pretty tight-knit network of folks that have been working on it for longer than, you know, the last couple of months before it got pretty popular. From having been in this space for a while, um, we had a pretty big network there kind of of those folks that were interested in this, had expertise, enjoyed it, and wanted to keep working in the space. So it was pretty easy to hire um, from our network. Kind of, We had a big kind of founding team, too. There were five of us at the start. You know, by combining all of those networks, we were able to get off to a pretty quick start with hiring and get a bunch of people that we had all known and worked with for years um, and didn't really need to dip too far into the kind of interview, screening, uh, kind of blind hiring process. Well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or, you know, have you been fighting this as you've grown? And I think it's I think it's going to be interesting, the combination of the solutions that you're using in the early days. But but I'm curious where you're going to take it. So tell me about scalability. On the engineering side, um, you know, we've obviously all worked on kind of big distributed systems for a while. Scalability comes up a lot, but um, it, it kind of turns out that kind of in, in this space you're in with, you know, software builds and metadata about kind of software itself. Things are tend to be a lot lower on the scale requirements than they are in other areas, right? If you, if you build a piece of software you're going to deploy, it's going to run and it's going to serve a lot more requests than that one build itself, almost tautologically. <laughs> um, and so kind of the amount of data that you're dealing with from kind of dependency management and everything can seem big, but in perspective, right, this isn't petabytes or terabytes of data that an organization is going to have to deal with. Um, it's kind of, you know, a couple zeros shaved off from whatever they're dealing with in production. The scaling problems there are a little bit different, more about keeping things fast and interactive for developers rather than dealing with massive amounts of data or QPS or anything. Yeah, the team side has definitely been more interesting, right? You know, there were five of us in October and there's 46 of us now. So kind of um, every time, you know, we add another five or, or 10 folks or another job function or something like that, we kind of have to relearn how to do all of this. And especially in this remote environment, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of startups that were kind of full remote before. Things are a little bit different now in this pandemic world. Even getting together is hard. Communication is tough. Every time we come up with a process, it feels like we outgrow it and need a new one two weeks later. <laughs> So as you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? 
definitely the team, right? We're still pretty early. We're tackling a big problem. Um, we've got a lot of awesome stuff coming, a lot of awesome products and open source projects coming down the pipeline. But um, yeah, this team that we've been able to hire and assemble is definitely the thing that I'm most proud of here at the company. Let's flip the script a little bit then. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Yeah, definitely uh, in, in kind of startups, especially this is my first time. Um, this is a lot of our first time uh, being in an early stage startup like this. Um, you don't know the questions you're supposed to ask. Like there's a lot of unknown unknowns that you don't find out until later. The, uh, the very first decision we made when you're setting up a company and incorporating is, uh, you know, where do you actually incorporate? Where do you put the headquarters? I mean, you know, companies always incorporate in Delaware, but like you still need an address for the company. And uh, we thought it didn't matter. We could just pick anything. So we picked one of, uh, one of the houses. Turned out that there are a lot of implications for which state that your headquarters is in. And we didn't find that out until much later. You know, it limited the healthcare plans we were able to get. That was one of the hardest things we had to go do. Um, he now has like something like 45 compliance posters that get shipped to his address because that's our official office. Every time somebody gets started, we have to put those like workspace safety things up so they're all sitting in his room. Yeah, just, just kind of basic stuff like that that you don't figure out until much later. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? Obviously, you've grown quite a bit in a really short amount of time. This is a popular space. What does the future look like? Yeah, that's been uh, pretty interesting, too, just kind of the crazy shifting market conditions across the whole venture capital landscape and the software space in general, even at the public markets. You know, 2020 and 2021 were kind of crazy in a lot of perspectives that way. Money was basically free. Startups were fundraising, you know, every six or eight months. Um, valuations were, were crazy, um, all because it's kind of interest rates were so low. Um, and then all of a sudden that changed at the start of 2022. Um, so everybody's kind of readjusting to that new landscape. Thankfully, we were a little early on that side and hadn't made too many mistakes there yet. Um, but yeah, you, you see a lot of uh, companies, unfortunately, having to go through layoffs and restructuring and everything to adjust to the, the new kind of rules at, at play in this whole world. So I think uh, growth is a little bit different. It looks a little different now, especially on kind of like the sales and marketing side. Um, A lot slower, a lot more of a focus on profitability rather than just kind of growth at all costs. So, okay, Dan, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Tell me someone you look up to and why. Oh, man, I I really lean on our team here, right? All all the other um, founders and all the other people in leadership here. Being a CEO is lonely in a lot of ways, right? You kind of have to make a lot of decisions. But being able to gather feedback and kind of just chat over, uh, you know, tough decisions with people that you trust and have worked with for years and years and years is really a big help. Being able to lean on them to actually get frank and honest answers and not just things that I want to hear um, on tough decisions has been the most helpful. Okay, we talked about a mistake a minute ago, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Easiest answer there is I would have started earlier, like six months earlier or something like that, right? You know, that, that we got asked that a lot. Like, why are you starting the company now? And it's like, well, six months ago probably would have been better, but now is like, the best time we possibly can. Um, waiting isn't going to make it any better. But yeah, I think, um, you know, two years earlier probably wouldn't have worked because there just wasn't enough attention to the space. Six months a year, something like that, probably would have been uh, put us in a little bit better of a position. So we're playing a little bit of catch up. Well, Dan, last question. So, so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can we show it off to you right there on the plane? What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Yeah, kind of same answer that I just gave before almost. Uh, just, just go for it. Get started. Um, and, you know, 
show stuff as, as often as you possibly can. And I know there's a lot of like, you know, um, different schools of thought there on whether you stay stealth until you have a big launch moment or something like that. But, um, you know, I think just get started early and show stuff as early and frequently as you can. You know, don't, don't hide stuff. Don't keep secrets. Just start getting feedback. Start showing everything you're doing to the world as early as you possibly can and tell that story. Amazing advice. Well, Dan, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Chain Guard. Yeah, thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.